Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Good morning and happy new year. It is a new year, and so because it's a new year, we are starting a new series on Titus, as you can see behind me. Um, We're going to go through this book for the next couple months, and I just want to take a second and pull back the curtain of what the inner workings of Grace Church are like, and the reason why we're going through Titus. So Mike and I got together and uh, planned together this series for the next couple months. We're going to be sharing some of the preaching responsibilities, but there is a reason why we're going through Titus, because the previous uh, series we did was on Isaiah. We talked about being captured by a bigger vision, by a better vision, um, one of Isaiah's visions that he gave us from God and how we ought to live our lives. Before that, we talked about um, in John what it means to have life in Jesus' name. Now, those are huge, two huge, massive, big picture kind of things. And the great thing that uh, Titus does is it takes those things and brings it down to the nitty-gritty, practical, day-to-day stuff. What does all that mean for us like tomorrow morning when we wake up? What does all this mean in our interactions with our coworkers? Um, and that's the stuff we get to talk about going through Titus, which is exciting and it's fun. There's so much stuck into these three chapters. I mean, if you're using one of our Bibles, it's just two pages, but there's so much stuff that's pumped into here. There's um, stuff about doctrine, there's stuff about church planting, there's stuff about leaders and and wives and husbands and all of these things. And so we're going to take our time to kind of talk about what we think um, God is telling us through his word. So, With this being a new series, let's orient ourselves to the letter as a whole, or I haven't quite got the verbiage of orientate, but uh, I'm sure in no time I'll adopt that, and you guys all roll your eyes. Um, So let's, uh, let's, what what is going on here with this letter to Titus? Well, the big thing is that uh, Paul has has started planting a church in Crete, which is where Titus is. But he had to move on to go to some other thing that, that Paul was involved in, and he left Titus there in Crete to kind of uh, uh, continue to strengthen and organize the plant there in Crete. So it makes sense talking about church planting because that's something that we as a church will do in the near future. So uh, this is kind of the situation here. It's the beginning stages, an embryo church plant. And so this letter is written from Paul to Titus. Paul, if you're not familiar with who he is, he calls himself here a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus. Paul, an apostle just means a sent one, uh, a messenger. Paul was someone who was a, uh, he was a Jewish guy that liked to persecute Christians, and then Jesus met him on the road and completely changed his life. And that's kind of the thing that happens whenever anyone meets Jesus. Our lives are radically altered and changed. Well, the thing that happened after that is he kind of became somewhat of an adventurer. He traveled around all sorts of places. He planted all sorts of churches. He was like shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He was beaten, persecuted most of the time. He had this amazing kind of life. And... Um, that's the, he believed that basically that this is the things that you get to do if the gospel is something that's true. So that's Paul, and he's writing to Titus. Titus is also an adventurer type. He traveled with Paul a lot. It's kind of like Paul's protege, his right-hand man. Um, Titus, unlike Paul, was not Jewish, and Paul liked to use that as an example of showing that the gospel is for people who are from all sorts of ethnicities, all sorts of backgrounds. This is an inclusive kind of family. And um, the way, what's going on here is uh, he accompanied Paul on his, this missionary journey here to Crete, 
and Titus was staying there and Paul left to go to something else. So Titus is a youngish kind of leader. He's not a completely young guy, but a youngish kind of leader and a young fledgling church plant. It doesn't have elders yet. It's just kind of barely getting off the ground and it's in a hard environment. Crete was a hard kind of environment. Here's an uh, image of where it's at. I think there's a little laser thing. Yeah, there we go. There's Crete, uh, part of Greece. Crete was known for a few things. Not all of them really good. <laughs> they, uh, there's a reason why Cretan is kind of like a bad thing to call somebody. Um, they had a massive pride about themselves. They believed that from their island emerged from the dirt the original Greeks. The original Greeks came from Crete from the dirt. They just rose up above. Not only that, but they also believed that the gods themselves came from Crete. They believed that the gods were normal Cretans, that normal human beings that were so amazing in their life that the people of Crete got to bestow divinity upon them. So not only did Greeks originally come from Crete, but also um, Cretans had the power to bestow divinity upon people, upon just to be able to do that. It's a little bit, little bit of an inflated sense of self there. Just a little bit. And uh, in fact, they believe too that the worship of the gods themselves started on Crete because the gods themselves came from Crete. And there's an important story here. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Greek gods, the most important Greek god is Zeus. And they believe that Zeus, like the rest of the gods, came from Crete. And his life was something that was amazing. He did all the things that people from Crete loved. He dispensed justice. He was really highly involved in organizing political systems. And he was also really good at seducing women. So because of that, they made him a god. This is how it works there. Um, but there was something else. Even though that Zeus was revered, uh, he wasn't someone that you could trust. He used deception often. So the Cretan saying was that Zeus was a liar. This is the highest god that someone from Crete could worship, was a liar, was a deceiver, was someone you couldn't trust. And so that's the situation that uh, Titus is, is being planted into. That's the kind of religion that's going on. And because of that, because of that, that way of life and that, um, that view of what gods are like, Crete itself was known as somewhat of like a partying kind of place. There, an ancient writer wrote this, and I love it. Um, it says, of Crete, Crete has no need for wild beasts, for its own inhabitants were sufficient. It's a great way to be, to be described. They were greedy. They were wealthy. They, they were known for supplying mercenaries. They were known for, for supplying pirates to, to piracy kind of voyages or however pirating works. So they had a misplaced faith in Zeus, who was a liar, and they had also this massive inflated sense of self. Not only are they the original true Greeks, but worship and everything really centered around them. This does not sound like a cultural backdrop that, be, that would be really easy to plant into. It does not sound like something that the, the culture is really developing people who are mature in themselves. The maturity, or the lack of maturity of the people in Crete is probably why there aren't any leaders yet in this fledgling little church plant. Paul was there for a certain amount of time and he had to leave. There still aren't leaders there. Now, Lest we think ourselves more clever or progressive than these Greeks and these people who lived before us, let's take a moment to see how similar we are in a segment I like to call Zeus and You. <laughs> so we may not worship Zeus, or if you do, apologies, I don't mean to be um, overlooking you, but for most of us, we've traded the face of Zeus for many other faceless gods, many other faceless idols that we worship. We don't call them gods, but that's what they are, like money, or status, 
or consumerism, getting all the things. I mean, take money, for example. In itself, there's nothing wrong with money. It's, it's a blank thing. It doesn't have an ethic of its own. But we project all these ideas and all these desires onto money. We give it our security. We give it our hope. We give it our status. We give it all of these things. But just like all of these faceless gods, money can never deliver on those things we, pro- we project onto it. And so instead of hope, we get anxiety. And instead of status or identity, we get, we get depression and we get shame. See, we have the same problems as those in Crete. We just name the things differently. And then, like today and the past couple days, a new year comes by and we say we're going to get better, we're not going to do those things. And yet in our trail we have broken resolutions of years past, piling up and piling up. Because the problem is that like the people of of Crete, we have misplaced faiths, and we have inflated senses of self. And even though those things don't give us what they want, we know really in our heart of hearts that money will not give us what we want, we still go back to it, and we still try and worship at that idol. We need to be saved from this faceless idols. And Paul's letter to Titus here breaks us out of this endless cycle and teaches us how to live a life devoted to what is good, to be able to be better humans, to be able to actually be the things that we want to be. And this particular message, we're focusing on those first four verses and what Paul is going to teach us that in order to truly be better, in order to truly get better, in order to truly be better human beings, Paul's going to call us to increase our faith in God, is going to call us to a knowledge that leads to something like godliness, and this is all in the hope of eternal life. And without thinking of that long sentence, there's three main um, ideas, main concepts that we're going to focus on, three concepts that Paul brings up here in these first four verses, and that is going to be faith, knowledge, and hope. It's these three things that Paul's getting to at these first four verses on what it means to grow in godliness, the things we actually want to do. So let's start with that first one. Let's start with faith. What is faith? Well, faith is believing in someone or it's believing in something. If you are a parent and you have a child who's trying to learn how to ride a bike, you might say, I have faith in you, or I believe in you. The parent hasn't seen that thing happen yet. The kid hasn't seen that, happen, that thing happen yet. But the parent believes that it will happen, something that will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, the kind of faith that Paul is writing about, he's writing about the faith that says here, the, uh, further the faith of God's elect. That just means further the faith of God's people. The, the kind of faith that God's people ought to have is a faith in God. We don't often have that, but that's the kind of faith that we ought to have. And he's interested in advancing our faith and in growing it and making it bigger. So from the start, in Titus's context, this is a little bit controversial. We can say faith in God and it not sound controversial. But think of where Titus is. Faith in God as opposed to other gods or as opposed to Zeus. That's a very controversial thing. Because this is Zeus territory. It conflicts. And really, though we are all, of course, very nice and very polite to each other all the time, um, faith in God is something that conflicts in our culture and in our society. Because sometimes faith in God means you can't have faith in these other secular idols, like the faith in yourself. The faith in yourself means you have everything you have to do uh, in order to, to get whatever it is that you want to get done. And maybe a way to test if something's controversial or not is if you can tell that to a group of people who you don't know very well. If there's like a group of three or four people over drinks and someone says, you know what, it's, they're saying a problem and someone in, re- in reply says, you know what, you just need to have faith in yourself. You just need to believe in yourself. That's really all you need. Everyone around that table will be like, oh yeah, you know, that's really good. That's inspiring and that's encouraging. That's what I need. I needed to hear that. Thank you. But if some, in, in another situation, 
someone says some kind of problem, and you know, it sounds like you're trying to put faith in yourself, and that's just, that's a dead end. Like, there's not, nothing good can come from that. That is all of a sudden when people start sipping their drinks and looking around awkwardly and trying to find someone else to talk to. You become a weirdo. You become that weird person. So faith in God actually is very controversial, even in our kind of outwardly polite society. And maybe just even just breaching the topic of faith has you feeling a little bit down or realizing, oh, I just need to get better at that. Maybe in your head you just made a New Year's resolution to get better at faith or something like that. Well, the good news is that for all of us, whether you have little faith or great faith, for all of us, we don't have, our faith doesn't depend on how much we have, it depends on the one we have faith in. It's not so much in the amount of faith that we have, but it's the object of our faith that actually matters. I mean, multiple times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks to those people who have little faith. He doesn't slap them, he doesn't tell them to sort themselves out, he doesn't say, just get more faith, will you, and grab them by the shoulders and shake them. He's, he's encouraging, he's loving, he lovingly encourages people. And he says that if you have the smallest, tiny, itty-bitty faith of a mustard seed, which is really super, super small, if you have that kind of faith, extraordinary things can happen, like moving mountains. That's because it's not about the amount of faith we have, ultimately. It's about it's what kind of faith we have, or the person that we have our faith in. We can have a small amount of faith, but we have a faith in one who's eternal and magnificent and huge, and that's actually what matters. Now, that said, though, what Paul's goal here is to further our faith. It's, it's to further Titus's faith, and for us reading it today, it's to further all of our faith. It was Titus's job to further the faith of his church plant. It's our job in this church to further the faith of everyone. And he's not saying to further those with little faith. He's saying to further everyone's faith. So whether you think you have little faith or great faith or somewhere in between, we can all grow. It's true in this room. Everyone here can grow in their faith. This is true even if you don't know Jesus. Everyone can grow. We're all in the same boat together. And this is what Paul's letter will be calling us to grow and what that looks like in real life. So we can have all kinds of faiths and all kinds of things, like the parent to a child about to ride a bike, or the faith that a chair will hold up my body if I sit in it even after the holiday seasonal eating. Um, and no, with small things like a chair, we don't have to have too much faith, and it's not even that important because if I sit in the chair and the chair does break, the worst thing that, I can, that can happen is you all can see it and someone can put it on Facebook or something like that, which would be really bad. Let's just be honest. But for larger things, it's more important for, our to, for us to investigate our faith. So if, if, if I break that chair and the chair breaks, well, that's just, you know, that's just kind of sad and somewhat hilarious to everyone else. But if, I, if the faith that I have in my ultimate hope, or if the faith that I have in, in who I am, if the faith that I have in what tomorrow is like or five years, if that kind of faith breaks, that is devastating. That's what leads to people ending their lives. The larger the thing, the more important it is for us to investigate what kind of faith we have. Where are we placing our faith? And how are we devoting ourselves to it? So worship to Zeus, worship of Zeus, of course, is funny to us, but at least the Greeks were honest with what they worshipped. <laughs> when we say, no one would say, I worship money. Who worships money? I worship money. No one would ever say that. But we sure do spend a lot of time talking about it. We spend a lot of time reading about it. We think about it. We can't sleep at night sometimes because of it. We try and manipulate it for it to take care of us when we get old. That sounds a lot like worship. That's what we all do. 
Worshiping something is putting your faith in that person or a thing. It's a trust and a misplaced trust, whether in ourselves or money or anything else. That can be devastating. I mean, just think of the banking collapse and the recession that came from that. We all had faith that these banking institutions were going to take care of our money, and they didn't do that very well. And that, does that lead to optimism? No, it leads to complete cynicism of the whole system. It was devastating because we realized our faith was misplaced. So it's important for us to figure out where our faith is and to investigate in ourselves where we are actually living. So faith is a very important thing. The second word that Paul is going to use to, to start out this letter is knowledge. Just faith and there's knowledge. Now knowledge is a very broad term and broadly speaking we all would agree that knowledge is a very good thing but there's a particular kind of knowledge that Paul is interested in here. This knowledge that he's talking about first is a full-orbed kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge that comes from seeing, comes from hearing, comes from other person's experience, from your own experience. It's a full-orbed knowledge. It's a full-orbed quest for seeking a full-orbed answer. And this is knowledge of the truth to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. There's all sorts of knowledge of truths. You can learn about an engine by working on it, reading books about it, talking to people about it. But Paul's talking about the truth, knowledge of the truth. He's talking about the gospel. The truth he's talking about is the story of the gospel. The story that tells us that though we are all broken, we can become whole because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He came into this world to save us. And that kind of knowledge leads to something. The knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the story of the gospel, leads to godliness. Those who know in various ways that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that's something that changes us. It changes our motivations. It changes our desires. It changes the way we act and behave. Knowing who God is and what he's done for us means that we don't stay the same. It's just what it is. And coming into contact with something as beautiful as the story of the gospel has to seep into and spill over into all different places of our lives. So the Greeks here that Titus is talking, it will be talking to in this church plant, they were into a form of godliness, or godsliness maybe is how they would say it, I don't know. But for them, it was more of a, a social respectability. It was an outward kind of vague sense of goodness. They'd be good citizens, they would um, give honor to each other, and they would participate in these kind of feasts and things that would be like worshiping gods. But this didn't stop them from their greedy lives. This didn't stop them from being those beasts that the ancient writers would talk about. It didn't stop them from an inflated sense of self. So their knowledge of that kind of godliness led them somewhere else. Paul's knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness is, again, more controversial and a little bit more specific. And this is where the majority of this letter is going to focus on. What does godliness look like? And that's why our, our little tagline is devoted to what is good. This is what we're called to be as, as Christians. And for those who have been changed by the story of the gospel, this is how we ought to live. We can live in a generally respectable, vague, kind of good kind of way and be polite to each other, but we're called to more than that because we're Christians. Now this knowledge of the truth isn't mere information for information's sake. And it's not knowledge that allows us to say the same. If we know in various ways, in full-orbed kind of way, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us, and that leads to something. Now, not all kinds of knowledge lead to something. Sometimes 
the knowledge that we have is just for knowledge's sake, and that can be fine, that can be great. I, I call that nerd knowledge. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the, the Star Wars film that's out, but there are some Star Wars nerds out there, and I am, may not be a complete nerd level, but I probably know a thing or two about the Star Wars universe that's really not useful in daily life. <laughs> Maybe. You know, and that's fine, that's great. We can talk about these things and it's fun. Um, but the, the, where we get into trouble with this as people who are believers, as people who are supposed to be following this book and what it means for us, is we can treat the knowledge in here as the same kind of level of nerd knowledge. We can take something like the doctrine of scripture and we can read about it, we can read books about it, we can pour over the Bible about it, and it really doesn't change our lives in the end. That doesn't grow us in godliness, that just grows us some kind of knowledge that doesn't lead to anywhere. The same thing can happen in our life groups. We can be reading, like going through a Bible study, learning tons, and then it actually at the end of the day doesn't actually change our behavior individually or as a group. But instead of growing in godliness, we choose another study to go through and we keep on going through that. We're not called to nerd knowledge. We're not called to treat the doctrines that, that God has given us the same way we would treat Darth Vader's backstory. These things matter. These things lead to something. They grow us in ways that are important. And Paul is calling for our lives to respond out of what we know. And the truth is, probably the majority of us know way more than the Greeks then even did about who God is. That means we have way more responsibility to live it out. And this kind of knowledge that we're going to be talking about and that we're talking about right now isn't something that you just get and then that's it. It's not like a possession you can acquire. It's a constant journey, a constant struggle, a constant investigation of figuring out what does God teach? How does he call me to live? It's one thing to know the truth. It's another to act as if it's true. So similar to Titus here in Crete, this is controversial for us in a culture that's marked by greed by consumerism, by an inflated sense of self. The knowledge we might personally have of the story of the gospel might mean not participating in the worship of the day. Taking time in the evening to be with your family instead of working late. Do you get penalized at work for that if you're expected to work late? Yeah, you do. You don't get any kind of kudos for leaving your job and working at home. Why is work-life balance such a hard question, such a question that we hear so often about? It doesn't need to be that way. We've set up these systems. This is a culture that we've created. Why is working so hard with our relationships and family and things like that? Because in the business world, we can tend to be oriented not towards relationships, but towards the bottom line. So being guided by money leads to a certain kind of life. And we can easily live in the knowledge of business that leads to greed or that leads to that kind of life. It doesn't lead to the truth. And right now, each one of us thinks that our time and our money is our own. And that's just not true. It's not how the Bible describes it. We have an overinflated senses of self. We do not deserve those things. That's what I think. I think I deserve the money that I get. I think I deserve the time that I have. The thing is, what God says is if you are part of God's people, then he, what he does is he loves to give us time and he loves to give us money so that it ought to be spent on other people, not ourselves. That just doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me. I want the money for myself. I want the time for myself. You know, there are lots of reasons that we do this. But the, really, the reason why we don't follow through is we think we're gods. We think we deserve those things. We're so similar to the people at Crete. And the knowledge of our inflated selves leads to stinginess with our time, with our money. The knowledge of the truth, though, 
that Paul's talking about leads to generosity with all those things. I mean, you see how we're swimming in a culture that really is not part of the gospel. It's not part of the story of the gospel. We're swimming in that current, sometimes with the current. And this is something that we all need to grow in. This is not something we'll ever completely be perfect and have. Now, just a little sidebar here. Um, sometimes when we talk about faith or knowledge and reason, they're like these things that reverse each other. You have faith on one side, you have reason on the other. That is just like a constant kind of thing of people, I don't really believe in Christianity because I'm, I'm like a science guy or I'm like a reason guy or I'm, I'm, a, I'm all about knowledge or whatever. Um, but the thing is, as we just read, it is a totally unbiblical position to think that those things are against each other. What the Bible teaches is that faith and reason go together. Faith and knowledge have to go together. People of faith are called for those things to interact with each other. They're not separate. They're not apart. It's kind of a really straw man, small, tiny argument against Christianity if you're going to talk about these things. But the reality is that regardless of what people have said or what you've heard, the biblical position is that these things go together. By themselves, that's just not what we are as Christians. And you know, maybe that's something that us Christians can be better at living out and explaining. But that's what the biblical truth is, especially in these, just these four verses here. Faith and reason, they go together. So, back to our original scheduled program here. Um, growing in godliness, we talked about faith, we talked about knowledge, and the last part is we're gonna talk about hope. Because he says in verse two, Paul writes, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, which is now at his appointed season, has brought to light. So this is a, a big thing. He, he's talking a lot about what this eternal life is about and what it means to have hope and eternal life. And when I first hear hoping in eternal life, it just sounds kind of naive to me. This is my first reaction is like, it sounds like a, how you talk about fairy tales. Eternal, like they lived happily ever after. That's how you end every fairy tale. Is this real life? And we think, well, you know, these were simpler people back then. We've progressed, and we've gotten more knowledge, and we know, like, these things are, they're maybe good to think about, but not really a good thing to live your life by. But who is more progressive, us or the people that lived back then, that would understand eternal life in a way different than we would? And if we don't have room in our imagination to think of what eternal life could be, we are actually the small-minded people. If we couldn't even fathom what it means to have a life that's eternal, which is something that blows my mind when I think about it, or even just that concept. I have a much smaller mind than someone who can more easily grasp that. We moderns are actually not really as progressive in this department as people in history. And we dismiss the idea out of hand. And the only kind of hopes that can live in small-minded worlds are small-minded hopes. It's not something worth believing in. But what God offers his people are eternal lives full of life, full of freedom. And this hope, this real hope, is based on God. And the way Paul puts this is he's based on God who does not lie, which is a very interesting way to put it. Of course, if you remember the background of Crete, Zeus was the guy who lied. He's their God who lied. But God is the one who doesn't lie. So this is a hope that we can actually trust to be real because God does not lie. This is actually something that could be real. It's trustworthy. And because there aren't very many 
Zeus worshipers here, though, of course. I think there's plenty of people, again, we talked about this, that we worship similar gods the same way that people back then would worship Zeus. They just go by different names. We've talked about them already. Money, inflated senses of self, like this, the fact that we think we are our own gods kind of thing. Now, there is a massive similarity between what we worship and what the Cretans worshipped, between Zeus and between money and all those other things. There's one massive similarity, and it's this. All idols lie. Zeus lied. Everyone who put their hope in Zeus, where did it get them? It didn't didn't get them to be better human beings. It didn't get them any kind of eternal life. Those of you who put your hope in money, what does it get you? Maybe if you even get the money, you're still depressed, you're still sad, you don't have those relationships that give you life. You don't have any kind of hope of eternal life. All of those idols lie. Your money as an object of worship is a liar. It can never deliver the hope that you seek. You, your worship of yourself is a lie. No amount of sex, no amount of alcohol, no amount of positive self-talk or self-help by itself can get you the things that you want. They all are liars. Only God offers real hope. And the thing about this hope is that it comes from an eternal promise. It's an eternal life that comes from an eternal promise. From before time, before this even existed, before this world was even here, there was a promise that this hope would exist for God's created people. There was a promise that the people that God created would be able to be with their creator. Our hope is in something eternal, and the promise itself is eternal. Now, if, again, if your immediate thought is like mine and eternal world just seems something that's kind of out there and not even real or abstract, or maybe at the best it's this idea of like the good, the true, and the beautiful. They're great ideas to think about, but they don't really bear in our, in our daily lives. You know, that, that can lead to thinking that anything eternal means fake or abstract. Again, the fairy tale kind of thing, happily ever after. But eternal doesn't necessarily equal fake or abstract. Because this eternal promise, Paul says, came into his life at this appointed season. In verse 3, in which now, at this appointed season, he has brought to light. God has brought this to light now. This is an eternal life that he's talking about being brought to light now through Paul's life and Paul's writing to Titus in his life. And Titus will be interacting with his church and their lives. Fast forward all the generations and all the people who have lived now to our life and our church. This is something that's going on now, something that's eternal, is breaking in through our space and our time. Eternal life isn't just something that exists out there. It's something that brings the out there to us. And this is what's happening now in Paul's letter and happening right now as we speak. Now, of course, we don't fully experience all that eternal life is. We don't fully experience complete, full freedom in every possible way. But the little bits and drips that we get here and there, that's all a partial down payment for this eternal life that is to come. I mean, there are so many hopes that we have that are fleeting, and we spend so much of our effort directed towards those fleeting hopes, and they're just going to fade away. The promise that God has brought into our world is something that will not fade, ever. There's nothing, this is unlike anything or anyone else in this world. They can't, nothing else can offer this. And through God's promise, the out there, the thing that we all really wish to be true, that out there thing comes to us. The hope we get to have as God's people is something eternal and real for us today and in the life to come.
And so when I think about this, my very first thought is, how in the world can this be? This just sounds too good to be true. How is this possible? Is this real? If this is real, this would change my life. And it is true. And the, the way we can take hold of these things is that it all centers around the mission of God. The promise before the beginning of time was that God would create a people for himself. That his people would reflect his light back to each other, to the world, and to him. And so what God did is in the beginning when he made human beings, he gave them a complete perfect paradise and what they did eventually is they chose death over life. And that's something that every human being who has been born since then has been born into. We choose death over life. We do it every day. But God loves us so much that even though we choose death over life, he still pursues us. And he breaks that cycle of choosing death and putting our, our hope in things that are faceless and that won't come through for us in the ways that we want. And he changes us. And now, because of that change, we can live in the light of life, not in the darkness of death. And this is how all that was done. The Son was sent by the Father and the Spirit into our world to reclaim us from death to life. We can't bring ourselves from death to life. We can try, it's just not gonna happen by ourselves. We need God to do it. And the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son into our actual lives so that we can actually live out this godliness that we're gonna be talking about. We can live in a godly, we, we, we just can't live in a godly way without the Spirit working inside of ourselves. We need God himself in us, working in us to work in these ways. And the apostles, like Paul, writing this letter, he was sent by the Son and the Spirit to teach us about Jesus, to write this whole New Testament that we have because we can't learn about those things ourselves. We need the Bible to teach us how we ought to live. And so now today, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have sent their church into the world through us. And we are called to be devoted to what is good. And that is reflecting God's goodness to each other and to the world. That's what godliness is. That's what real growth as human beings looks like. And that's why we have this image of a woodworker working, devoting himself to what is good. It's a careful devotion, carving out peace, carving out peace. Every day, every minute of every day, there's progress being made. And it, it takes a long time. And it's not something you can do and be done with. It's a progressive kind of thing. And this is what faith in God is like, having a knowledge that leads to godliness, all in the hope of eternal life. Changed lives don't come through taking off a few New Year's resolutions. They don't come from you trying to do better. If you don't know who God is, you're gonna be spinning your wheels until you decide to know who he is. It, what, what it comes through, what changed lives come through is the power of God working, himself working in our daily lives, day in and day out guiding our hands, carving that piece over and over and over again. And the great thing is even though God is huge and massive and has created the world and has this eternal promise before the world even began and offers us this eternal life, he gets in it with us and moves the, the, uh, the, the pieces with us and helps carve out the things that we need to be carved out. And we get to do great things like sing to him, like hear about his word that he teaches us, and we get to pray to him and talk to him and say, God, I want more of this in my life. Or if you don't know who God is, God, I want to know you. I want this in my life. And so let's do that today. Let's pray to this wonderful God that we have. Father, as we approach these truths, and we just, we only read four verses of a massive book 
And Lord, we feel the weight of it and we feel the life of it at the same time. And as we approach these truths, Lord, we realize how far away we are from you. We realize how often we put our faith in those baseless things. God, we don't want to be like that. We know that just that, that's a dead-end road. Lord, we ask for you to make us who you've created us to be. Lord, we ask us to make us into better humans. We, may, we ask us to, for you to grow us in godliness. Lord, you created us to be something. We want you to continue that work in us. And Lord, we invite you, we ask you, we, we, we plead with you to help us and change us because we can't do that ourselves. And so Lord, for those of us who are praying to you and we know who you are because you're our Father, you have promised this to be working out in us. We pray that you will continue to work. You continue to show us the dark areas of our hearts that we try and hide you from. And Lord, would you, would you get in there and, and, and make us better? Lord, for those who are listening to this prayer and they don't yet know you as a father, Lord, we pray for them that they would grow in their faith, that they would continue to investigate what they have faith in and test them. Can it hold the weight of our hopes? Father, we thank you that you can do more than hold the weight of our hopes. We thank you that you are not a liar and you don't deceive us, that you're trustworthy and we can trust in you. And Lord, we give you that. We give you our faith. We give you our hope. We give you our knowledge. We give you any kind of growth and godliness. We ask for you to work in it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.